0: Good morning, and welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for December 11, 2013. I have a, um, a, a, not desperate, but a, a heartfelt reminder from Kim Gifford and our residency program that we are in the thick of recruitment season. This is the time when many medical students are traveling around the world and visiting programs and... We always do well when we have a good turnout of, of, of friends, faculty, staff, and students. We were starting to thin out. And Mondays are hard. So I, I'm going to give you a reminder. Maybe you'll jot it down in your box. And Cameron sends out reminders. But we are looking for mostly Mondays and Fridays for the coming month. So next Monday the 16th and Friday the 20th. Monday the 6th of January. So we'll have a break around the holidays as of next Friday. Monday the 6th, Monday the 13th, and Tuesday the 21st. And I'm as bad as anyone knows. Monday mornings are hard to get us back going in the week. But those are 7.30 breakfasts and gatherings, and we'll try and send Friday afternoon reminders for next Monday and the following Monday. Because we always do well when when our faculty shows up and and shows the interest we have. So with that reminder, I welcome you to Grand Rounds and and remind people that there's no, we attest that there's no, um, there are no um, conflicts of interest. Uh, Dr. Donnelly will remind those when he is uh, presenting off-label indications that he is doing so. But this is uh, exciting for me because this is the first overlapping Pediatric Grand Rounds and CHAD Mini Fellowship Series. So we have started something this summer called the CHAD Mini Fellowship Series which is designed to be uh, state-of-the-art updates on common and important c- uh, clinical conditions in pediatrics for practicing pediatricians, both uh, generalists and specialists. and. Um, the notion is that we um, help continue to enhance the practice of all of our all of us at CHAD and improve us as uh, as faculty providers of state of the art care in various disciplines. We focus for four to six months on a particular discipline uh, in order to make it a mini fellowship feeling. We hope to establish some standard best practices across CHAD so that. All of us, and there are six or eight primary care practices in the region, in addition to colleagues who practice specialty care, are, are doing the same thing. That will facilitate transfer to and from, hopefully, the medical home, the primary care medical home, to the specialist's office, knowing that we're following common approaches and we're using similar strategies and perhaps even standard agents as an as anxiety standard, uh, standard screening and diagnostic tools, as well as standard uh, medications. And, and Craig put together really a, a really great inaugural series that started in the summer, uh, unfortunately a little bit counter-programmed with Grand Rounds, but going forward it's going to follow in the third week of every month we're going to have our Grand Rounds is going to be also a mini-fellowship. It's been broadcast to our colleagues in, in Nashua, Manchester, uh, keen and concrete at various times as well. And we're still in the first, uh, in the inaugural behavioral, uh, behavioral health, Chad Mini Fellowship Series, is an inaugural series and Craig has led that and is going to give us an update today on anxiety disorders in youth. We'll have a final <coughs> talk actually next month on depression by Burl uh, Davis and then we're going to kick off a probably a gastroenterology focused um, Mini Fellowship for the spring and summer of next year. So. This is something we're excited about. Pam Hoffley and Eric Schessler came up with it and we've carried it forward. Dr. Donnelly, I don't have his CV with me, but he is is well known to all of us as a professor of pediatrics as well as professor of psychiatry. He's the leader of child and adolescent psychiatry here and regionally. He does many things in addition to this mini fellowship series regionally in terms of uh, doing telehealth-based care as well as telehealth-based education and collaborative office rounds traveling up to the nether regions of the north and to the seacoast on a regular basis and um, and always one of our um, most highly ris- rated speakers. So Craig, I took some of your time, but yeah. but hopefully you'll be able to catch us up.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Keith. Um, I actually was expecting to be speaking about five people uh, in a mini fellowship, so. <laughs> um, so um, I've got a little bit of a cold and um, a little bit some medicine It drives me out a little bit so if I sneeze and cough, excuse me. Um, First off, a shout out to all of the uh, um, dancers and singers and video makers, Uh, it's just amazing and you guys have definitely thrown down the gauntlet to uh, uh, child psychiatry, I'm not sure we can keep up. a break dance but that's so out of fashion now. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, don't try to compete. Okay, I understand. There,
0: there will be a reboost in the next <laughs> weeks as there's year end reviews of the year. There's going to be a fair number of re-viewings of the Tribe War video on ABC News and some websites. We've been ranked in the top 50 viral videos of the year by some websites, so there'll be a nice <laughs> booster shot of the War video over the holidays.
1: <laughs> it's a good virus, right? Yeah. Um, but in any event, uh, I'm so proud of you guys. It just, it's just—it's not often that you get such a good feeling of the place where you work, and that really um, bragging rights for those of us who work with kids here. So today I'm gonna <coughs> sort of update you on anxiety disorders. Um, this is not a high science talk, so I'm not going to be going into serotonin receptor subtypes and um, that kind of thing. But what I was hoping to do was to focus on really a kind of a Pragmatic approach uh, to working with kids with anxiety disorders, and especially from a, a primary care practice, because the advantage you guys have over us is you have continuity with um, with your patients and families through time, and that really can be an important advantage. Um, um, do I need to... So what we're going to do, we're going to talk about in general, um, there's a guy come in to see his doctor and the, uh, the physician corrects him and it says uh, it's pronounced heal a monster, the, the G is silent. <laughs> so you get the nomenclature. So as many of you know, uh, the newest diagnostic diagnostic and statistical manual, our bible for psychiatric diagnosis uh, was updated this last year. after. Uh, a long hiatus and uh, I want to go through just a couple of the changes that you might see with regards to diagnostic criteria, a little bit about epidemiology and uh, uh, how common anxiety disorders are and then we'll talk about the risk and comorbidity factors that um, you're likely to see when working with kids uh, who have anxiety. And I'll spend a little time with some pragmatics about screening, diagnosis and then uh, probably the. The meat of the talk or the take homes is, is in regard to treatment. So, when I was a resident, uh, DSM 4 came out. It was 886 pages and uh, it lasted for almost 20 years. It was designed to last for about six years uh, before the, the newer iteration. Uh, the newest manual, DSM 5, and you notice they've dropped the Roman numeral. Uh, among a number of other changes. Um, It's a little bit longer, uh, 947 pages. I'm not gonna go through a lot of detail, but the the changes that you might notice is, number one, uh, it's meant to be much more dimensional as opposed to categorical. And as we know, eye color, hair color, height, weight, you know, they're they're dimensional attributes. And psychiatric symptomatology, is also dimensional in nature. So there's been an attempt to kind of fit more true to life. Uh, Gone is the multi-axial five axis system, axis one being um, major uh, mental health diagnoses, axis two being personality (coughs) disorders, developmental issues, learning disorders, axis three being uh, physical medical conditions. They've taken away the axis system and they've tried to group disorders in neighborhoods that phenomenologically sit next to their closest neighbor uh, so anxiety spectrum disorders sits next to depression uh, bipolar disorder sits next to schizophrenia and psychotic uh, spectrum conditions so there's been a really a more of a attempt to be face valid in terms of how disorders are grouped um, particular changes and again I don't want to spend a whole lot of time with this but uh, in regard to anxiety disorders, um, post-traumatic stress disorder and OCD, which are the two least likely anxiety disorders to respond to placebo. They have very, very low placebo response rates. And phenomenologically, they're different uh, for a number of reasons than other anxiety spectrum disorders. So they've been taken out of the anxiety disorder category. Um, post-traumatic stress disorder, has been modified and extended downward to have criteria for preschool, early school age children. And that's an important, uh, uh, I think, development and advancement. Social anxiety disorder has been given a new specifier, uh, performance only. And for those of you who uh, work with adolescents, um, this is a a common subtype. Uh, Adolescents who very much want social interaction but are performance anxious, and that interferes and causes debility. And then, finally down at the bottom, uh, separation anxiety disorder. uh, The realization that sometimes adults also experience separation anxiety disorder uh, has been codified in DSM-5. So these are the the range of anxiety disorders uh, that are diagnosable, codable in childhood and just have broken out OCD because phenomenologically it has, and, and uh, treatment wise, it has more in common with other disorders of compulsivity like, for example, Tourette syndrome. Uh, and post-traumatic stress disorder has been broken out into a separate category of uh, and acute stress disorder, the short-term version of PTSD, uh, have been broken out separately. So uh, general epidemiology, just to set the frame, uh, Roughly you know, over our 330 million people uh, in the United States, more than 80 million are under the age of 18. Uh, it may surprise people that rates of mental illness in kids uh, is only the order of one in five. So one in five children that we work with uh, has a diagnosable mental illness. Of that group, only about one in four are getting treatment, and Strangely enough, the majority of treatment is being rendered by folks like you, non-specialist treatment. And only about one in four of that group is actually getting any specialty treatment in mental health. So there's a a huge unmet need, or uh, depending on how you look at it, a burden that falls to you folks uh, for rendering mental health care. And if you don't do it, they're not going to get it. So that's sort of a bottom line take home. This has public health implications. Uh, Kids 14 to 24 in the United States, suicide is the third leading cause of death. It's number two uh, if you live in New Hampshire. And just to kind of benchmark common disorders, we think about ADHD as being quite common. We focus a lot on depression, uh, but anxiety disorders are far more common than uh, either of the other two. And if we look at at specific epidemiology as it relates to anxiety, uh, again, up to 20% of kids, depending on the uh, the comorbidity National Comorbidity Study uh, data that you look at, one in five kids meets criteria for um, an anxiety disorder. They're the most common, but the least likely to be diagnosed disorders, because unlike externalizing disorders, where kids with ADHD will say, you know. I don't see any problem, My mom's always yelling at me and the teacher's always you know, on me, but I'm okay. Uh, internalizing disorders are shaming, and especially in younger kids who don't have a, uh, uh, an adequate vocabulary to describe experience, they're often suffered alone. Uh, so one of the, I'm gonna give you a couple of take homes today, uh, if you diagnose an anxiety disorder which is a general rule of thumb in child psychiatry, assume comorbidity. Assume that there's another diagnosis there that you're just not seeing or aware of. Because there's a greater than 50% chance that you're true, you're accurate with that assumption. And rather to err on the side of continuing to look than, than not to look. Uh, comorbidity with depression uh, is a particular conundrum for uh, treatment of anxiety disorders because oftentimes, uh, for one, there elevates the risk in uh, children and adolescents for suicide if you have a comorbid uh, affective disorder diagnosis. And the second thing is treatment does not work equally across both disorders. So sometimes one disorder, for example, depression, will improve, but the anxiety disorder won't. And so it's important to uh, cast a wide net in terms of both surveillance and treatment monitoring. Uh, in these cases of depression and anxiety comorbidity. So what are some of the risk factors that set kids up or that um, we uh, we can predict would be more likely to contribute to anxiety? And this is, again, right up your guy's alley. Chronic illness, chronic illness elevates the risk for a diagnosable anxiety disorder two to three times population means. So if you're working with with kids who have chronic illness, uh, look for anxiety. Temperament and genetics. I tell parents and kids that anxiety in my sort of simple, oh God, one gene, one disorder, uh, rather rudimentary view of genetics, that, that anxiety disorders are like eye color and hair color. They run in families. So it's not because you're rich or poor, because you're smart or dumb, you're weak or strong. But it's like eye color, hair color. There's a tuning that you come into the world with that can set you up for anxiety. And you guys see these kids, but because you're looking at them in a medical context, oftentimes these are the kids that won't let you examine their ears. They're the kids that are shy and, and hide behind mom or won't separate from the parent to go into the exam room. Uh, they're, they're kids that by temperament are novelty avoidant. And this is a temperamental feature that uh, that tracks consistently through life. So kids that are novelty avoidant at six months of age are at 12, 18, 36, and at school age. Um, attachment, I'm gonna go into a, a lot about attachment, but in, kids who have insecure attachments um, are much, much more likely to, uh, to experience anxiety and anxiety disorders. There are a couple of parent factors that also <coughs> Contribute to setting up kids for anxiety disorders. Um, maternal depression or anxiety disorders uh, is a setup, and postpartum depression um, in a mom with other children at home should uh, trigger a, a flag for potential uh, anxiety in the kids at home. And an anxious, hostile parenting style, uh, hostility. Frank aggression, obviously, but there's a certain nattering, critical, uh, hostile kind of, of parenting. Where you hear about the helicopter mom, but these are sort of nagging, critical, um, hostile parents that can oftentimes set kids up for anxiety. Obviously, trauma, uh, abuse, psychosocial adversity uh, is a factor, and then uh, brain damage and so-called neuro atypicality. Um, it may or may not surprise you that that the chief reason that kids come in to see us that have Asperger's syndrome or <coughs> autism spectrum conditions is, is not really the autism spectrum condition, it's either anxiety, <coughs> ADHD like symptoms or aggression. And Most often, anxiety is a part of the presentation in um, kids with spectrum conditions and can often be the most debilitating uh, aspect apart from the the core problems with reciprocal social interaction. So, head injury, TBI, or anything that that causes a child to be neuroatypical. I mentioned the rule of thumb in child psychiatry is comorbidity. If you have one diagnosis, you got two. This is a, it's uh, like the nozzle diagram for the space shuttle or something, but it's, a, it's actually a Venn diagram the, the, really the seminal study of ADHD, the multimodal treatment of ADHD study, um, largest federally funded ADHD trial that's been conducted and data on these kids has been followed out now more than 10 years. I'd show this to you, this, this is a community sample, research study looking at ADHD. A third of the population of kids, in that study had comorbid anxiety disorders. So you can see the other comorbidities, but just to drive home that point that think comorbidity. Now, a lot of times parents come in and will say, my child's anxious and I don't want them to experience anxiety. I want you to treat them and I don't want them to experience anxiety. And uh, they're very crestfallen when I say impossible. And the truth of the matter is, as you guys well know, anxiety is ubiquitous. And it's an important affective state for mammals. Uh, Anxiety has two functions primarily. It warns us of pending or impending danger. And it prepares us to act. Uh, And I think you're familiar with that U-shaped anxiety curve, looking at anxiety uh, versus performance (laughs) that No anxiety and performance is pretty poor. Um, A little bit of anxiety, performance starts to get better. There's a peak effect and then as anxiety continues to increase on this scale, performance falls off. So there's a a sweet spot where you need enough anxiety actually to be able to function. Um, So what I try to do is to provide parents a reframing of anxiety that Anxiety is a a sequence of developmental experiences that kids go through that lead to mastery. Because it's mastery of anxiety uh, that's key, not avoidance of anxiety. And in each developmental there there's certain uh, types of anxiety that are more characteristic. And this tends to map on to the the types of anxiety that are diagnosed uh, across the age span. So early in life, um, um, surprises were um, <clears throat> confrontations to a child's nervous system, stranger anxiety, uh, environmental threat, early age, seven to 12 months, and then the um, expansion of the, the dangerousness of the world and an understanding of that. Uh, you see in adolescence more performance based social factors contribute to anxiety. And the notion of anxiety disorder, as opposed to just anxiety or anxiety symptoms, disorder really implies persistence. Persistence across time and across domains of functioning, severity, and finally, impairment. Anxiety disorder implies that the anxiety is time-consuming, distressing, and it prevents folks from doing what they want to do or what they need to do. So, some screening and diagnostic considerations. Again, you're in a, I think, a unique position to be able to hedge your bets uh, as far as the kind of kids that are likely to experience anxiety, and then to be able to ask questions um, that are good screening questions and may lead to a diagnosis when no one else uh, may pick that up. So, flags like chronic illness, shyness, on exam, experience of trauma or family trauma, um, parental anxiety disorders or affective disorders, depression uh, and so forth, and then avoidance behaviors if parents report that kids are avoiding activities. Um, Again, maintain a high index of suspicion because if you're not looking for it, internalizing disorders can be well-kept secrets through time and oftentimes they're there's what I call symptomatic creepage, where parents make adjustments slowly through time, it's like kind of watching your kid grow. You don't really notice it, uh, but parents can make com- parents can compensate for their kid's anxiety um, over time in little increments. Um, I had a, a family when I was at Duke, and the mom was doing a um, uh, hundred loads of wash a week uh, because her daughter was had OCD and was couldn't get dressed in the morning, basically. She dressed and redressed and dressed and redressed and clothes were dirty and contaminated. And the mom really wasn't aware that 100 loads of wash, she was doing wash all the time, and it seemed okay. Um, there are instruments, and Keith mentioned that <clears throat> that we've, we're trying to standardize approaches, um, not only to treatment, but also to evaluation, and hopefully, knock on wood, um, we'll have screening instruments that are orderable, uh, printable uh, through EDH uh, for the most common disorders in childhood, so ADHD instruments, anxiety instruments, depression instruments, um, and so forth that, that hopefully will standardize cross talk between us uh, and improve diagnostic precision. Uh, one thing that's important, another kind of take home message, is uh, the notion that if you only ask kids or you only ask parents, you miss half the cases. Uh, because there's only a 50% agreement, approximately, in terms of diagnosing anxiety disorders if you base it on one informant. So you've got to ask both, both children and parents. Um, again, parents are good at reporting externalizing symptoms. Kids, uh, sort of the. the the thinking is kids are a little bit better at um, at reporting internalizing symptoms. Is that still true by adolescence? Keith? Pardon me. Is that still true by adolescence? It's true through up through adolescence. Yes. And again, it's a good question, Aris, because uh, anxiety disorders are very shaming disorders. So many times adolescents will go to uh, to great trouble to hide their anxiety, um, not only from peers but from parents. So. Some questions, and I think the, you know, screening instruments are great, and they can flag you, and um, you know, diagnostic precision is dependent upon uh, those kinds of standardized questions. But I think a good clinical exam for anxiety disorders uh, really is based on persistence. Don't take no for an answer. Is the way I approach it. Um, you can't talk somebody into an anxiety disorder, uh, just like you can't talk somebody into psychosis. Um, we get a lot of kids referred by schools because they're they've heard voices or they've seen seen visual or auditory hallucinations, and in school age kids, preteens, psychosis is extremely extremely rare, and more often it's an anxiety equivalent symptom, that's an illusion or uh, a misperception, but the adults take it as oh my gosh it's a psychotic symptom, uh, so. I try my best to talk kids out of their psychotic symptoms. Any of you have worked with adults with psychosis, you cannot talk someone out of a delusion. I mean, It's a fixed false belief by definition. Uh, So similarly with kids. In any event, what I try to do is to ask questions that are experienced near and in different ways through time in the interview. So to say, you know, are you anxious? You know, a lot of parents uh, don't use the term anxious uh, for their kids' anxiety. So, finding different ways, different words to ask the questions. And common screening questions, um, again, trying to use the vernacular and, and, and parlance. Uh, is your child a worry word? Are they anxious, nervous? You know, Do they get easily scared? Are they frustrated, fretful, nervous-y? Um, Screening for OCD, do you count, check, repeat, order or arrange things? 85% of folks with OCD, if you ask those questions, they'll screen positive. Ask that one question. <laughs> do you have silly habits or rituals, things that you have to do, and if you don't, you don't feel comfortable or you feel worried? Um, can you go to shopping malls, movie theaters, restaurants? Um, if I gave you $5, could you go to McDonald's and stand up there at the register and order a Happy Meal? Can you pee in a public bathroom if your mom's waiting outside the door for you? Uh, Can you talk on the phone, eat, write while somebody's watching? Could you get up in front of class and give a little five minute talk about something you know a lot about? Um, It's these kind of experience near very basic questions that uh, lead into uh, more sophisticated questions about uh, diagnosing anxiety disorders. My rule of thumb, and I think a pretty good guide, is asking kids, how much do you, if you added up all the worry time you spend on the average day, how much is that? Is it, and give them anchors. Uh, Is it more or less than a half hour? Is it more or less than an hour? One to three hours, three to six hours. So, more than an hour of uh, endorsed anxiety uh, is a strong red flag for an anxiety disorder. An hour of your day spent in worry thoughts is significant. So, I use that as a a cut point uh, for, again, more sophisticated kind of uh, questions and drilling down for anxiety disorder symptoms. The diagnostic anchors, and I've got this in the bottom of slides when you see yellow there, hopefully it's a uh, take home uh, summary point, but the, the anchors for anxiety disorder are interference, avoidance, distress, upset, and time consumption. Anxiety disorders consume people's time, time, effort, energy. All right, so here's a guy getting on a busy elevator with his uh, <coughs> lion, and uh, the door's about to close and the lion's tail, and the guy says, don't worry, folks, he's completely harmless unless something startles him. Um, he's just being a lion, right? It's ways to. We think about uh, anxiety as being mediated primarily through uh, serotonin, and serotonin is a ubiquitous and, and widespread um, neurotransmitter system, but clearly the story is more complicated. Um, norepinephrine, dopamine, uh, GABA, other neurotransmitters are involved. Um, as I said, I'm not gonna go through a lot of uh of science-y things, but just to set you up for uh, what we're trying to tweak in terms of treatment, and whether we're trying to tweak in terms of um, psychopharmacology or in terms of behavioral experience, uh, then the end result is the same. So when you think about treatment interventions, when you think about what am I gonna apply in this family or this child that's gonna have a mutative effect, a changing effect, a healing effect in terms of anxiety, think of where your interventions Have most bang for the buck? Where are kids spending their time? What are they doing? So for us, you know, we're bottom of the bottom of the heap there. The impact that we can have—even a therapist seeing a kid once a week—that's you know four hours a month. And who sees a therapist once a week these days? Um, Coaches, teachers, kids spend time with friends and parents. I put medicine down there just as kind of a. cute point that medicines always with you but not that I'm biased or anything. Um, so a kind of a stepwise uh, approach to uh, anxiety disorder, you know, anxiety disorders. Um, a, a first step that I think a lot of times we collectively get lazy with is uh, really establishing a good baseline with good target symptoms and target impairments. Now what is it that's causing? Um, Impairment or dysfunction, we want to be descriptive and anchor that, and uh, Adrian Engel and Jane Costello at Duke used to talk about research on a string, that you can ask a kid to bisect uh, an imaginary line, and they can do that validly and reliably. You can do it next week and the week after and a year later, so you can get kids to anchor actual. Uh, severity of their anxiety symptoms at a 10-point scale with an imaginary string that you pull out of your pocket. Um, using scales, and the scared, the SCARED, S-C-A-R-E-D, is the scale that will be in EDH. And it's a good um, broad spectrum and, and treatment monitoring scale for anxiety. Um, I thought about going through that, but um, I'll make it available if, if you guys want to see it, but it should be loaded into EDH. The first step and the first intervention that's really important is psychoeducation. And this is a step, I think, also that we, we oftentimes forget forget about. Both kids and parents need to understand the nature of anxiety. They need a, um, some splaining, as uh, my brethren down south would say. They need to understand the nature of anxiety, that it's ubiquitous, it's normal, um, it's when it gets dysregulated, that it becomes a problem. Uh, And they need to understand approaches to the anxiety. Kids especially need to understand that it's not, again, because they're weak or strong, rich or poor, uh, smart or dumb, but this is something that that is happening to them uh, uh, despite their best intentions. Uh, Following with the referral from a primary care standpoint for specific psychotherapy, and this is gonna be for the time we have remaining a a consistent um, sort of pet peeve of mine and uh, uh, and message to to you folks. Um, I say refer for counseling um, is a risky proposition and, you know, maybe a a kind of stupid comparison but you'd never think about uh, referring to another physician for drugs or uh, referring for some pills. You know, you, you guys are much more crisp and, and precise in your thinking. But there's that black box of psychiatry that when you refer, you know, who knows what happens behind those closed doors and you know the old lines, you, you never hear back, you know. Patients would be swallowed up in the black box. Um, we'll talk more about that and how to avoid that. Medications, uh, you know, the typical, uh, I think, bias is that kids, especially young kids, are vulnerable. And we have to protect vulnerable kids from uh, the ill effects of medication. And while I agree with that principle, that that assumption has caused a lot of problems for child psychiatry and for children in general because what it's done is it's, it's protected kids from the application of good science. So that we end up treating with agents that are off-label, because kids have been protected from clinical trials, for example. Uh, Medications, and again, the bias typically is for therapy or counseling first, then medicines. There are situations where medicines may be the first um, out-the-gates choice. If you don't have access to competent therapy, if you have severe anxiety that's highly impairing, um, you wouldn't let a kid in status asthmaticus um, refer to counseling, right? You would, you would jump in and treat that. Uh, similarly with anxiety. Uh, what I, my approach is to normalize and externalize anxiety. Kids need to get some distance from their perception of their anxiety. Their anxiety is not them. I am not anxious. I'm Craig, right? And kids oftentimes have that assumption. I'm anxious. I'm an anxious person. It becomes part of their self-view and so the first sort of therapeutic intervention is a, a little bit of a uh, an Aikido move to get the anxiety as something that's outside and that's bossing them around or interfering with their life. So to get some dissonance and distance from it and oftentimes uh, medicalizing it can be a Uh, a useful strategy, just like you would medicalize asthma or diabetes or seizures. Uh, There's something happening to you, they are not you. It's a subtle point, but it's an important uh, wedge, uh, psychologically, to getting some distance between symptoms. Parent guidance, Uh, uh, surprisingly frequently, I can tell you that we'll evaluate kids that really probably do have anxiety disorders and smart, well-intended, balanced parents can oftentimes uh, guide therapy for their own kids. There's a series of books by a psychologist down on the seacoast, Don Hubner, that we really like, um, and they're kind of cartoon, comic booky, but pretty sophisticated. Um, that parents and kids can read together. And embedded in those books are the principles of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, so what to do when you worry too much for general anxiety, what to do when your brain gets stuck, for OCD, and they're very nice preludes to beginning formal therapy. Setting up both the parent and child in terms of the model uh, of treatment. Um, Your role, in my view, is to set parents up for being good consumers of care, good consumers of, of psychotherapy. We'll talk about how to do that. The rationale for for treatment really is not suppression of symptoms through the wonders of psychopharmacology, uh, but it's really to achieve mastery. Medication is a tool uh, that assists kids in achieving mastery over their anxiety symptoms. And the way I, I talk to parents and kids about it is say that, that there's no no skills in pills. You're not going to learn anything from taking your Prozac. They help you as a tool helps, as an inhaler suppresses alveolar, Hyperreactivity, but it's not it's not going to teach you anything. Um, so there are a lot of psychotherapies out there. There's personal therapy, and there's sand play and floor time and behavioral therapy and cognitive therapy and um, whatever the therapy, the key ingredient to treating anxiety is to face the thing you fear. Lean against the sharp points. That's where the action is. And that's why I tell parents or kids when they say, "I want you to treat my anxiety, but I don't want to experience any anxiety," I tell them impossible. <laughs> I want to know. If, I, I want them to know up front that this is going to be a fight. <coughs> this is a hard thing that you're doing. And forewarned is forearmed. If you know you're in for a struggle, you're going to prepare yourself, and I'm going to help prepare you. Uh, but exposure to the thing that makes you anxious is the key ingredient for treating anxiety, no matter what the therapeutic discipline. Younger kids require behavioral therapy. Um, older kids, cognitive behavioral therapy, specific uh, treatment technology for post-traumatic stress disorder that's called trauma-focused CBT. Um, trauma-focused CBT. The key ingredient is developing a narrative of the trauma, talking about the bad thing that happened to you, and by doing that, you're exposing yourself to the anxiety. So exposure leads to extinction, right? Well-timed and titrated, exposure leads to extinction of anxiety. Just as, you know, thank goodness we're mammals, it's hard to keep in a state of arousal, whether it's joy, orgasm, sadness, worry. The body has normal dampening mechanisms, and we capture that in terms of extinction of anxiety arousal. Pharmacotherapy, and we'll go into some detail, because I have kind of some um, recommendations about standard approaches. Uh, benzodiazepines, you know, the old uh, standard anxiolytics, probably should be used rarely in kids. Some people will not use them in kids, and I think uh, I wouldn't ban them in children. They do have uh, some uses. For example, when, when especially in adolescents, where exposure uh, is so distressing, that that adolescents can't engage in anxiety therapy. Benzodiazepines can be useful at dampening down so that they can engage in exposure therapy as rescue strategies. Uh, Oftentimes, people with panic disorder, you just put uh, a clonopin in their purse and they're good to go. You don't even have to take it. Um, They can engage in the kinds of exposure tasks that are necessary to treat their anxiety. Um, Far and away, the The mainstream, mainline, frontline, and likely most effective treatments for anxiety disorders in children are the broad spectrum selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Um, Broad spectrum, and they treat a diversity of anxiety symptoms as well as mood disorders, uh, aggression, repetitive behaviors. These medicines have um, broad action uh, in terms of the brain. Other agents, and I'm going to go through a little bit of a, an approach. Alpha agonists. So, the medicines that we oftentimes use uh, as, as adjunctive treatments in ADHD 10x, guanfacine, and tunib, the long acting form, uh, clonidine, clonidine patch, catapress. Those medicines can be useful in dampening down physiologic arousal and impulsiveness um, that co occur with, uh, with significant anxiety symptoms. And if you're treating ADHD, you may get bang for the buck in terms of um, some benefit in terms of both disorders. And just uh, not in the slide, but just uh, a, a comment about comorbidity with ADHD. Anxiety disorders are very common, commonly occur with ADHD. Uh, my sort of recommendation is when you tackle that, that you really, really do it like a, a train track, that you follow two parallel paths keeping focus both on ADHD and on anxiety, and treat those um, separately but with an eye to the other. Uh, Oftentimes, uh, treatment of anxiety can improve ADHD and vice versa. You'll see stimulant medicines are contraindicated. If you look at methylphenidate, dextroamphetamine, they're contraindicated in in folks with anxiety disorders. Don't believe it. Um, Kids with anxiety, who have significant robust ADHD oftentimes respond very well to stimulant medicines and it doesn't worsen their anxiety. So just a, as a sidebar. Combined therapy, psychotherapy plus medication, uh, really is the best uh, therapy in terms of uh, robustness of effect and uh, rapidity of onset. Uh, but we think about reaching for medicines when you know time is of the essence symptoms are severe, kids are not going to school or have bailed out from uh, social obligations, family obligations, or just uh, so distressed that they, they can't function. So pharmacology, the, the SSRIs, we've got you know uh, the original agent, uh, first in class, uh, probably best in class Prozac, and then uh, a lot of uh, Me Too agents. Um, a couple of just to provide guidance. When talking to parents about medications, oftentimes they want to read uh, a little more than you have time for or I have time for in the office. ParentsMedGuide.org is a great website uh, for parents to look at uh, information about psychotropic medications. uh, There's a lot of kooky stuff on the internet, as you guys know, and sometimes providing guidance uh, as to reputable sites that have been vetted uh, can be useful, so I would recommend that site. Three medicines that are FDA approved for the use, uh, for use in anxiety in kids, fluoxetine, Prozac, Fluvoxamine, Luvox, and Sertraline are approved in OCD. Okay. You won't see clinical trials in kids with separation anxiety disorder, or social anxiety disorder. Um, it's just not worth companies money to conduct these, these large trials. So this is the off-label part of uh, the talk. Um, many of these medicines are used. Take-home point, don't use paroxetine. That's the one SSRI not to use. is a great medicine, it's a potent SSRI, um, but uh, because it's relatively short uh, short half-life and very potent, uh, when it's stopped quickly, discontinuation syndrome can be Uh, highly distressing, and paroxetine is the one medicine that's associated with a slightly higher elevated suicide um, ideation risk. Um, So dosing parameters, uh, anaphronil, clomipramine, interesting medicine, it was the first medicine approved for uh, treatment of OCD, and it does have a label, FDA label for treatment in children, but it's a tricyclic antidepressant. It's the most serotonergic tricyclic, So there are problems with um, cardiac conduction, uh, risk for torsade, And so it's a little bit more cumbersome to use because EKG monitoring is is necessary. There's no question that these agents, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, have taken um, child treatment by storm. Uh, There's some difference on the left hand side of the the figure you'll see um, pre-adolescent children and you can see that these agents are used primarily in anxiety disorders. That's a lion's share of their, their use. Um, whereas in adolescent populations, mood disorders uh, start to gain ascendancy. And it makes sense in some ways because in uh, depression rates are lower in prepubertal kids. Girls and boys have approximately equal depression rates. Once adolescence hits, women start to, girls start to have higher rates of depression. That continues on till late life, when men start to uh, uh, become equal in terms of depression rates. Interestingly, marriage is a protective factor for depression for, uh, for men; the risk factor for women. Usually, <laughs> <laughs> the guys are like, "What?" The like, <laughs> Okay. So note that that X through proxetine, Do not use proxetine and I've got your medical legal back here, and that's why why I'm telling you that. Busy slide that's packed with sort of information. Take home points are that there there are a lot of different, there's 16 serotonin receptor subtypes that have been cloned. These agents differ in terms of the montage of, of receptor affinity. So there's enough difference between agents, in terms of structure activity relationships, that it makes sense to trial two or three agents within class before you, you give up. So two or three SSRIs should be tried before you go out of class or call me. Um, the other thing, the notion that, that these medicines are are dangerous, they actually represent a um, uh, just a wholesale shift in safety profile from the older medicines that we had, however, There is this notion of the black box warning. Uh, We use the agents uh, in a diversity of different disorders. Again, they're broad spectrum. I want to spend just a minute. uh, Here's here's me at the dentist, right? And the dentist says, now open even wider, Mr. Donnelly. Just out of curiosity, we're going to also see if we can't cram in this tennis ball. Um, That's what I feel like. So the risk of giving you too much information, I did want to touch black box warning. there were 25 pediatric trials that involved probably 45,000 visits uh, that the FDA used in their analysis. They didn't study all drugs, but they labeled all drugs that have some kind of utility in mood disorders in that black box. Um, Columbia University did the, the meta-analysis um, that led to this data. and. and I'm telling you this because I think it's important to address with parents. Parents say, you know, I want you to treat my kid, but don't use that suicidal pill, Prozac. Um, did a meta-analysis, they uh, they looked at various models statistically of, uh, uh, of the outcome. So 4,500 patients, roughly 45,000 visits, 78 so-called signal events. These were suicidal ideation, and in a handful of cases, um, suicidal action so cutting uh, that kind of thing good news is in the analysis there were no completed suicides so the black box warning um, is was made without the presence of um, the dreaded adverse event actually occurring so it's important to tell parents that <coughs> the summary is that in all the data when when Columbia looked at the number of kids that were treated with de- antidepressants, and versus the number of kids treated with placebo, 4% of kids uh, that were treated with active drug had suicidal ideation or behaviors. 2% of kids that were treated with placebo did. And these were primarily depression trials. So they cut this data every which way, looking at moderating variables, mediating factors, length of illness, severity of depression, age of onset, they could not find any factors that loaded onto that 2% difference, the 4% versus 2%. So what they did, they said, we don't understand it, but it's a signal and we're going to label it with a black box. Um, now what I do with parents, is, so up front, tell them about this because if you don't mention it, those are the parents who are going to read this on the internet and are going to go ballistic. So, Obviously, addressing it up front is the best strategy. What I do is, is use a metaphor and I preface it that this is the world according to me, so you need to take that with a grain of salt. Um, you can ask my wife, I've been wrong in the past a couple times. <laughs> uh, but I use the example that there's no medicine that is actually gonna take and stick a thought in your head. We'd have state capital pills. We'd have algebra pills, spelling pills, if that were the case, right? No medicine is gonna put a thought into your head. What my view on this phenomenon is, psychotropic medicines, uh, rarely and sometimes not so rarely, actually cause the thing that they're trying to treat. Some kids get anxious and activated on SSRIs. If you're depressed and your resting homeostasis is shifted to depression, and I give you something, medicine, that in four to six percent of cases makes you jittery, edgy, activated. That shifts your your homeostasis even farther down that dysphoric trail. And a natural cognitive consequence of that is to say, this is too much, I just, even this medicine's not helping me, I wanna be dead. That's my interpretation of this 4% versus 2% signal. Um, The black box warning subsequently has been uh, extended to other classes of agents and Richard and folks that are commonly using those are aware as well. Um, So it's it's not just with um, antidepressant spectrum medicines. My advice would be don't let this scare you off. Don't let anxiety about this prevent you from treating anxiety. Um, There's risk with everything in life and certainly anxiety and depression are highly impairing and suicide related to depression is far, far in excess of the risk rate for using using these medicines to treat depression or anxiety. Side effects, again, side effects are part of medicine, even placebo has significant side effect rates. Uh, Commonly among the SSRIs, headache, stomach ache, sometimes sleepy, Uh, Sometimes uh, these medicines can actually activate and energize folks. Uh, It's important to ask when you're using SSRIs in teens uh, about sexual functioning. Early studies, the clinical trials with Prozac, 4% of adults reported sexual related side effects to the medicines. And that was because they didn't ask about it. You had to volunteer that information. Later studies where in primary care offices, people were asked about sexual side effects 60 to 70% of people treated with Prozac have side effects. Um, now, some parents may like that, uh, <laughs> but it's important that those of us working with with teens, it's a consideration and, um, to normalize that, those kinds of questions. Uncommon, these agents can rarely.
0: sample.. There's also reports that testosterone levels are lower in adults. With, yeah. And you know, I see a lot of kids with pubertal delay have been treated with SSRIs, you know, pre-adolescence. I'm just wondering, has anyone looked objectively to see if you're actually yeah. delaying puberty? Um, because sometimes that adds an extra right. bit of concern on social isolation if their puberty is delayed.
1: Right, it's a very good question. It's, it's That finding was first identified in rat pubs, uh, and uh, there hasn't been long-term specific mm-hmm. surveillance uh, for that issue. And I've I've heard that from uh, other clinicians as well. Um, it's post-marketing surveillance just hasn't picked that up, but it's a, it's a very good question. And I think it's if there need,
0: were. It's an easy study to do, really. Yeah. A lot of kids are in that
1: class. We will talk. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. um, and just quickly, when using these medicines, Uh, All the serotonin reuptake inhibition that you're gonna get happens within 24 hours. The beneficial effects of these medicines are downstream and sometimes eight, 12 weeks if you're treating obsessive compulsive disorder. So you gotta be patient with using these medicines. What you're likely to see first is the emergence of side effects. And my strategy is to anticipate that to tell folks, if your side effects are mild to moderate, I'd like you to try to tolerate that while we're starting the medicine up. That tells us the medicine's in your system and it's working. And typically those side effects diminish. The worst thing, and oftentimes what we're confronted with, is kids have had failed trials on multiple different agents. Inadequate doses for inadequate periods of time, and folks have bailed on the medicine for inadequate reasons. And that's, that confuses the clinical picture. So, the more you can get folks to kind of hang in there, um, the, the more likely your, your chances of success. Um, quickly, the non SSRI medications, alpha agonists, and uh, BUSPAR, BUSPARONES, a non benzodiazepine agent. Um, it was released with uh, great promise 20 years ago, first non-benzodiazepine, anxiolytic agent. Some people think it's placebo <laughs> spelled sideways. Uh, it's the kind of medicine, though, that has a wide dose range, 5BID to 30TID, very safe, and few side effects. Uh, and occasionally, you hit it out of the park with this medicine, so it really is a, a medicine worth trying. Beta blockers, hydroxyzine, you know, Vistaril, um, Benadryl really have no place in the treatment of anxiety disorders. They suppress anxiety by making people somnolent and, as you've seen with me, drying them out. Uh, So that's not a a particularly good strategy for anxiety disorders. Um, Benzodiazepines, again, uh, should be used, but rarely and for specific purposes. Uh, Again, rescue strategies or uh, to make psychotherapy go easier. How effective are these these medicines? These studies, I picked, they're 10 years old or so, but they're the best studies that have been done. And you can see differences between placebo and active medication, um, you know, in the order of (coughs) mid-30s, 34%. Uh, What's interesting to me is the placebo response rate. Um, You can bet that in treatment of any anxiety disorder, besides OCD and PTSD, you will get a robust initial placebo response nitrogenic magic. Capture that. Whatever you do, you're likely to have some benefit uh, initially. Problems with placebo effects is through time they diminish and often quickly. But capture that effect uh, in terms of getting folks into psychotherapy, um, seeing them back frequently, getting them up to a, a reasonable dose uh, with medication. Because there are significant uh, treatment effects and you know, the, ironically, the, the study that probably was the best study was Maura Rin's study that, um, you know, the, the SSR response rate was 90%, um, and it was a very well-conducted study. Prognosis, what do you tell folks with anxiety? The good news is that most kids that have identifiable anxiety disorders in youth, youth onset will recover as they, they grow into adulthood. It's not true for, some caveats there, it's not true for OCD. OCD, if you get to choose your anxiety disorder, don't choose OCD, that's not a good one to have. Um, recovery rates in OCD follows the rule of thirds. A third of people get better, a third of people remain about the same, a third of people get worse over time, and that's with full court press treatment. It's one of the reasons why it was split out from the anxiety disorders. Um, a third of kids, however, will develop new disorders through time and oftentimes comorbid depression. And it makes sense when you think about it, not only from a, a neurotransmitter standpoint in terms of shared domains, but anxiety over time is exhausting and it's discouraging. Right? If you're continuously not mastering the day-to-day challenges of life, um, that's discouraging. Parents often come to me and say, you know, Dr. Donnelly, my, my my son just doesn't feel good about himself. He's got poor self-esteem. Why does that, Dr. Garner? And I want to say, well, I'm not a mind reader. Why does not feel good But, But I actually do. And, I, and uh, you know, we feel good about ourselves because uh, we're competent at things. And competence breeds confidence. You guys are competent, highly competent at what you do. And because of that, you see yourself having success, mostly. um, And you see competence in action, and therefore you feel confident, you feel good about that competence. A lot of the kids we see, uh, whether because of anxiety disorders interfering with their activities in life, or because of lack of opportunity and psychosocial burden, don't have opportunities to develop competence. So of course they don't feel good about themselves. They're not good at anything. I've been accused as that being quite a male view of the world, you know, do not be. Uh, But I I think there's some some truth in it. And one of the um, sort of hidden assets of a successful anxiety disorder treatment is that it's an area where kids develop competence, and they see it, they experience it, and it's a reason to feel good. Um, Generalized anxiety disorder and social anxiety disorder are the two sort of Anxiety disorders that tend to ramify through life. So kids that are highly separation anxious as kids, uh, as teens, and young adults often develop uh, social anxiety disorder, social <coughs> phobia. Um, so just to kind of summarize here, um, I want to make two points in closing, though. These disorders are common. The changes between DSM-4 and DSM-5. You no, it's good to read about this, a nice, short, uh, crisp uh, chapter in DSM-5 about the changes, but uh, for, for you folks, I think the important thing is just increasing, looking for surveillance of anxiety disorders and assuming psychiatric comorbidity when you find them. Um, best treatment really is uh, combined treatment. If you want the most robust treatment, medication plus a skills-based, exposure-focused, Psychotherapy—that's that's the gold standard. Um, and so here's my my sort of final crescendo pet peeve. I really have a pet peeve in terms of treatment in of what I call fiddling around therapy. Right? Sometimes it's called eclectic therapy. Um, and not my wife's a PhD clinical psychologist, so I'm I'm not slamming the the non-MD field, but. Garbage in, garbage out, guy go, right? If you don't know what you're doing up front, you're unlikely to have a a good effect or a good outcome. Anxiety disorders are no place to kind of mess around. Um, We know uh, in terms of treatment, what treatment technologies work for anxiety disorders. So it's a tragedy in my view when kids get put into inappropriate therapy, fiddling around therapy that's unfocused, non-skills based, at the very least, it wastes time and money. Sours people on the notion that psychotherapy can be an effective intervention. Right? And I see kids that have been in psychotherapy for five years, they're eight, over half their life. And I ask parents, what are, the, what are you guys focused on in psychotherapy? And the parent will say, well, I'm not really sure. I drop them off, you know, pick them up an hour later, I think they play checkers. Um, <laughs> that's wrong, in my view. Uh, you guys aren't treating five and six year olds and not telling parents what you're doing. Right? Parents need to be involved. Maybe in the nitty-gritty secret details, but parents need to be involved. So, my sort of advice uh, for all of us when referring for counseling or therapy is to make better consumers of parents. So, you guys are are smart and adept at knowing that anxiety disorders are debilitating, they're quite common in kids, and there's good treatment technologies. So, as a parent, you have no guidance as far as what's a good psychotherapist, what's a good psychotherapy, because you guys are front line often, and the ones who are are making this initial diagnosis. These are the things that I would send parents out of your office with. So, when you say, I want you to get Joey a therapist, But after that initial evaluation, you ask that therapist four questions. Therapist, what's your formulation of my kid's problem? What's your method that you propose to deal with that problem? How long will it take? And when will we know when it's time to stop? I like this because it makes me sweat a little bit when parents ask this, because I have to think. right? I have to formulate, I have to commit. And that's exactly what we want therapists to do. All right, get the the hook out, Keith. Just feels like sundown uh, after this talk, but uh, I like that notion that you know, call on God, have some faith, but roll away from the rocks.
0: (laughs) Um, I have a question along those lines. Since primary care providers are having to do so much mental health care, um, and it sounds like medicine is really only one arm, um, who can train someone to do cognitive behavioral therapy? It sounds, from what I've heard about it, it's a long process and very complicated and you
1: wouldn't want to do it wrong. So who's, if there's not enough the providers to give all these kids cognitive. Benefit, right. How do you learn how to do that? Well, you become a psychologist or a psychiatrist, a <laughs> training issue. It's not rocket science and the principles. Please, I'll get emails from you. Uh, but You're the, I know. The, <laughs> the principles are, are pretty straightforward and I think operational. For you guys in your setting in the intensive care unit with parents and with kids um, and in primary care interactions. The basic core principles and rationale for the treatment are not complex. It's the practice, right, and the homework, the exposure tasks that are the essence of the treatment. That's the hard part, and that's where the therapeutic uh, artfulness comes in.
0: Yeah. You mentioned primary care. We put the tools in the EDH for everyone because we know all pediatric clinicians encounter kids with mental health behavioral conditions that are comorbidities or cofactors for their reason for presentation in all of our offices. So even though we wouldn't expect non primary care medical home to necessarily engage in treatment per se, it would not be unreasonable if they so desire to use the screening tools and refer back to the or refer smartly the psychology. The other thing is for the other topics in this series: depression, ADHD, autism spectrum disorders. All the other talks have been taped and are on the internet, um, so that you can see Craig and and Susan Spiegel's talks on those other topics, which are just as practically focused. As this. This, this this anxiety it, you see it in the you see it in the Right. So can, can I just two, yeah,
1: two so just uh, quick, so just, to for sure
0: about the conversation Yeah, but I'll see. be anybody quick. Anybody two quick notice.
1: points because that's your question was excellent. One, it implies misapplied psychotherapy can be harmful. And we don't th- we don't think about that. Psychotherapy is good. Good for everybody, right? No. Psychotherapy is dosed and like medicine, it has adverse potential effects. So that's an important point to that. And the second point, and kind of a good point to end on, is you know, that's, that's a chief reason why kids get treated with medication, because they don't have access to competent cognitive behavioral therapy. There's nobody there to do it, so your choice is not a good one. You're gonna let them languish symptomatically, or you're gonna you know, take the risk and treat with medication. And sometimes that's the only thing that kids have in order to alleviate their anxiety symptoms, so yeah, not a good.